Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Pastor Charles is at Box Hill, our other campus this morning. He's ministering over there. And yes, Jesus probably wasn't born on the 25th of December. I'm sorry to spoil your Christmas stuff. I'm actually going to blow a few more myths. But uh, before we get there, I want to thank you for being such a generous church in your giving, particularly towards the drought relief. Um, what, what Pastor Bruce did in um, Condobolin was incredible. Some of you have never met Bruce, um, so he's our campus pastor in Wangaratta in our network of five churches and it was really birthed out of their prayer group to do that all our churches came together and gave through an offering and uh, we're such a giving church really appreciate uh, the fact that we contribute some of that money of that eleven thousand dollars to make a difference there we're going to take up a second offering at the end of our service for our mission partners and i'm going to give you a little bit of a missions update when we get to that so i'll just let you know that that's coming up as well we had um, an internship this year. In fact, any of our interns are here, I know, well, Clarissa, who did communion, was our intern this year. Why don't the interns stand up? I had four. I, I did have five. Lockie, you can stand up at the back there. Anna Lee, Rebecca. Let's give them a really big hand. They, they were an incredible bunch. Lockie, you're not standing. You can stand up, Lockie. No, he doesn't want to stand. Okay, he's on the sound. Um, we've been running an internship for two years now here at Uni Hill Church. And the idea is to actually help anybody who wants to do some more sort of ministry-related type skills in a public setting. So you, you may never actually desire to come and stand with a microphone um, up here, but it could be just including maybe running a department, leading a small group in the church. It doesn't have to be, you know, a big public forum. And so we've actually been developing some people to learn and practice some of those skills for two years. And next year we're running the internship again. Um, so next year we're doing it with a new organisation set up by the ex-principal um, at Harvest Bible College, Brendan Roach. Some of you all know that name and know of Harvest Bible College. They've set up a new training organisation called Accelerate Global. And so we're going to facilitate six subjects that will contribute towards a certificate of local church ministry. It's um, a non-accredited award, so it's not like a certificate for, um, but part of why we've chosen not to try and chase down accreditation is most people don't need it um, and also it keeps the price way down so instead of paying three thousand for the subjects that that our interns did this year you're only going to pay just under a thousand for those six subjects and i'll be facilitating the internship here but also we're joining our whole movement um, nationally where all the people doing this course we're going to do some online cohorts together and that sort of stuff so if you're interested in that either come and have a chat to me I have an information pack I can give you that's got much more detail and so anyone who's over the age of 18 can apply to do that and you're most welcome to do so everybody getting ready for Christmas shopping anyone actually done most of their shopping yeah look at that a few of us so you didn't put your hand up we're ready We've been wrapping presents already. I think we're nearly done. We're nearly done with our present wrapping, writing Christmas cards. How many people have a lot of stuff to do? Put your hand up. Yes, no, no. I try to avoid the shopping centres this time of year because the parking gets crazy. Any time of day or night you go. And so we're coming up to Christmas. We have got this theme where we're talking about some of the scandals at Christmas. That's because when we think about Christmas, we think of this. Actually, put up the next slide for me, Jackie. We think of this beautiful, incredible, warm, cosy nativity scene of little baby Jesus laying in a straw manger made of timber 
We've got sheep. Sometimes you see donkeys. There's a stalking kid in that picture. I don't know what that kid's doing in there, but he's stalking baby Jesus. We've got sheep. Sometimes you see camels. You know, you've got the, the wise men or the magi. But you know what? Half of that stuff's not true. And so really what we thought we'd do is trying to sort of strip back some of the popular modern images that, that sort of feed into our belief system around what happened at Christmas and go back to the original source. There's only actually two writers in Scripture that talked about the birth of Jesus. Now, part of the reason why that was is in the ancient world, when people would write a biography effectively of someone's life, it wasn't common to talk about their birth. It was actually very uncommon. Unlike today, if someone wrote a biography of your life, it would be most common. In fact, that's where most people start. They talk about maybe your grandparents, your parents, your birth. But when we get to the four particular accounts of the story of Jesus we call Gospels in Scripture, only two of those writers, Matthew and Luke, include any detail of his birth because, again, in their culture, it was actually not necessary. In fact, it was extremely uncommon when it's compared to other ancient manuscripts of the same era that talk about someone's life. And so, in actual fact, what we have is special insight. And even when you read Matthew and, and Luke's account, they have different views. They don't share the same detail. They give different stories. That's because they're writing to a specific audience as an author. So Matthew's writing to people who are Jews, and he's specifically trying to get them to understand that all the Old Testament verses that they knew could actually quote verbatim mostly around a Messiah coming actually is about this baby Jesus. And so what we see on Christmas cards, what gets put up, you know, on, on uh, images that you see on TV, movies and all that sort of stuff is actually not quite what really happened. So we're going to cover a couple of things. Today I'm going to talk about uh, the, the scandal of being a misfit. Now when I look around this audience today, I've got to say, I can spot some good misfits. Uh, Jordan just did a great job, didn't he? But he's a bit of a misfit, isn't he, really? I'm a bit of a misfit. You know, I didn't come from a great family. I haven't got a great Christian heritage. You know, I've got a criminal record. I lived in a boy's home. I'm a misfit. Turn to the person next to you and say, listen, you're the best misfit I've ever seen. You just don't belong. You're an odd person. We're also going to talk about, uh, next week, Pastor Charles is going to talk about Joseph and particularly his story of his losing his reputation. So I don't know if you sort of join some of these dots in the information that Matthew and Luke has given us around um, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus is, of course, Joseph loses his reputation because he marries a woman, well, he's betrothed to or engaged to in our language, but has never slept with and she, she's pregnant. So Charles is going to unpack that next week. You won't want to miss that. And then also we're going to cover another one where we're talking about the scandal of singing worship during shame, when you feel shame. So that's, that's going to come up. So let me tell you a little bit more about what's not true in this picture here. So some modern scandals about the way we've unpacked Christmas. So we've talked about the date. It's not December 21st. I've got to thank Steve Crennan. Where are you, Steve? I saw you over there. Let's, Steve did this artwork you see up here. Can you see the top there? It says Bethlehem Bugle. <laughs> Tuesday the 26th of December, 0004 BC, which actually is pretty accurate. You probably looked that up, did you? 
Jesus wasn't born on 00 BC. It was probably around anywhere between 5 to 7. Um, but that's another story. You won't touch that one. Jesus wasn't born in December. How, we know, how do we know that? How do scholars know that? They know that because a Roman census is called. That's what forces Joseph to take his betrothed woman who's pregnant from Nazareth, where they lived, to Bethlehem. He has to go to Bethlehem because his family line actually originated out of Bethlehem. And so to fit in with the census, you had to go to your family origins village. And so that's why they make that journey. Well, the Romans wouldn't have called a census during winter. It's December in Israel and Judea during winter. It's bitterly cold, particularly in the evenings, and it's very difficult to travel. And so, in fact, most theologians think Jesus was probably born a little bit earlier. We don't ever really know. No one knows an exact date or even the exact month. But they think probably around autumn because of the number of the festivals that take place around um, not long after he's born. So they think maybe autumn, which probably puts it around September, October. But again, we don't know. Now, that's a bit of a scandal for us. I've got to tell you something that when, when I was doing all this research, I'm sorry to tell you, Mary probably didn't ride a donkey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. In fact, she probably walked. It's a 105-kilometre journey, and uh, I've had the privilege of going to Israel. It's not very friendly walking country, um, but there's no mention of any donkey in Matthew or Luke. So I'm sorry to blow that one out of the water for you as well. No inn. They didn't have inns. There was no Airbnb, Hotels.com. <laughs> there was no Hilton. There was no budget motel. They, they just didn't exist in that ancient world. There was no common place that you as a traveller could actually go and stay and pay for boards and lodgings. And so it's a little bit of a mistranslation um, of the old Greek word into the 1611 edition of the King James where they put the word in. But in fact, there wasn't any in that world. In fact, what you would do, in fact, in this story where Joseph is taking Mary to Bethlehem, he's going there because his family, extended family, live there. And so you're obligated in that culture and in many cultures today of the world, if you have an extended family member to comes to where you live, you have to take them in. You have to host them, feed them. You're obligated to do so. That's probably what happened. So there was no, you know, Joseph didn't get on Airbnb and make a booking. There's no inn. There just weren't any inns. In fact, the word that used just simply means a room. And it's the same word that um, Luke uses when he talks about the upper room in Acts, when the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say the, the apostles, Jesus told the apostles to go and gather at the inn and wait for the Holy Spirit to fall. But it's one of those things. Here's another one. There's no stable. I'm sorry, that image there is just totally incorrect. They didn't have stables in that culture. So some of us who have travelled in different parts of the world today, you know you go to some cultures... Where do they keep some of their animals? In their own home. So when it's bitterly cold, you bring your most important animals inside into your kitchen area. Now I can see John Santo over there. John and I have travelled to Kenya many times. John, how many times do we have to chase out chickens from those kitchens where they're cooking our dinner and lunch? Or goats? That's actually the world that Jesus was born into. They didn't have stables. That's a modern thing. Um, what they did actually to house their animals is bring them either into the, the ground area of the little home, the very tiny homes that they built. They'd often, when they had enough money, would build an extension of a small room attached to their stone sort of straw mud hut uh, for guests. 
But during winter, the bitterly cold winter, some animals would come inside to protect those animals. And so, you know, there's probably no stable as we understand it. What was actually normal from archaeological digs, they know they sometimes would dig a bit of a room underground. So from ground level, there'd be a room underground, they'd force the animals under there. So Jesus could have been born in an underground small room, like very small, but the animals are probably still outside. It's not winter. And the other thing they've discovered is many families who had at least the capability, their little sort of what we call a stable or a place to put animals during winter was actually built out of a small cave. They would actually hack out. They live near a hillside. They'd hack out a bit of a, a little cave area. And the, the manger, that was the animal trough for feeding, was actually... Um, also cut into the little cave wall. So it probably wasn't this wooden structure that we see in little um, Christmas cards. I'm, I'm, I'm blowing up your Christmas, I'm sorry. Uh, but, you know, these scandals are just there. Probably no animals at, at all, I've mentioned that one. I can't tell you about the wise men. Firstly, they're not three of them. Secondly, they're not there in the biblical story. We don't, you know, the reason you see three in, in Christmas cards is because of the three gifts that are given. But in actual fact, if you read Matthew or Luke's account, there's no mention of how many. There might have been two, might have been 16. Who knows? It's only because of the three gifts. And the other thing is, of course, by the time they got there, Jesus was actually an infant, maybe even a toddler. And so, you know, they're not sort of standing around like we see here. You know, we've got all these sort of images that are stuck in our heads. So we have to go back to the source material. What I want to do today is, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're just going to read the first three verses of Matthew chapter 1. He's actually one of the original disciples. He personally knew Jesus. Now Luke, who writes the other account, is, knows the people who personally knew Jesus, but wasn't one of the original 12 disciples that travelled and lived with Jesus for that approximately three-year period. But Matthew, the Levi tax collector, the Jewish tax collector, actually was very close with Jesus, was one of the original 12. And so he writes an account of Jesus' birth. And as I said, what we're going to do today, talking a little bit about the scandal of being a misfit or an undesirable, I'm just going to highlight this sort of, I don't know if you've ever read the first 17 verses of Matthew. What we have is what's called a genealogy or genealogy. And it's, a, it's basically a family tree. It's tracing Jesus' heritage right back from Abraham. But particularly Matthew's focus is to show his Jewish readers, the original readers of what we call the Matthew of Gospel, that Jesus' line is actually linked to David because there were prophecies about a redeemer or a messiah, a saviour coming through the line of David in the Old Testament. And so Matthew's creating this, this list of names, which, you know, I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's pretty hard to sort of go through them all. In fact, there's 40, um, let me get this right, 43 separate names that Matthew lists before he gets to the name Jesus in his uh, family tree of Jesus. So, of course, you know, when you read it, uh, you can see it up on the screen here. It says, the family tree of Jesus from the uh, message translation, son of David. Well, he's not really David's son literally, but again, that's the way Matthew's trying to link Jesus' connection to King David, who, of course, King David is the best king Israel ever had. 
and it almost foreshadows. In other words, he, he sort of all, his life formulates this type of Messiah that will come. And so he, he, in Matthew's mind as a writer, writing to original Jewish audience, he's trying to connect to say, this baby Jesus that I'm about to tell you how he was born is actually coming from the line of David's family. That's why David gets top billing. And that's probably a good start. David's a bit of a hero of the faith. Then he mentions Abraham. So now he goes back further in time. Abraham's the first, him and Sarah are the first people that are called by Yahweh that forms what we call the family of God or the children of Israel or for us, you know, living after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the church, the ecclesia, the gathered, the children of God. We're the children of God. In fact, the reason why Matthew does that is because Abraham is the father of the faith. He's actually the first one that God, the God we were worshipping just before, called by name to start formulating his own family. And many of you know the story. God promises Abraham and Sarah that their descendants will be as numerous as the stars or the sand on the shores. And that's, we, we are literally living that promise today that was given to Abraham. So that starts really well. Matthew gets you know, a couple of heroes of the faith right up front. And of course, he mentions a few other names. But then when he gets to the next line, you can see there in verse, he's got Abraham, Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. And then he says, Judah. Well, now Judah's not quite as righteous as the others. Let's put it that way. Judah's an interesting character. He's the fourth son of Jacob by Leah. You can, you can read all this in Genesis. And then he actually mentions Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar. So you can see her there. He's got the two, two names of the boys that Tamar has. And so when I was reading this whole genealogy and looking at all these different characters, I just thought I'd stop here. So we're not going to go any further. You can read it later if you want to. But there's a lot of little misfits, a lot of little undesirables there. And the story of Judah and Tamar is part of what I want to explain. Why does Matthew put that in? Now listen, I don't know about you, but if I was writing as a witness, you know, someone who personally knew Jesus and all the other apostles, knew Jesus' family, knew Jesus' mother, heard the stories being told, and I'm sitting down writing, knowing that this, this letter that I'm writing is going to be copied and spread throughout all other church groups around the world at the time, I'd probably want to make sure I do a good job at keeping that list a little bit cleaner. Not the misfits and the undesirables. I don't know about you, but that's what I think we'd have a natural tendency to do it. In fact, what scholars say and archaeologists who examine ancient manuscripts, they're actually very surprised that Matthew goes to great lengths to include people that actually don't do Jesus' family tree any favours. It's very unusual when they compare it to other manuscripts written at the same era. In fact, if you want to say, say how great someone is and how incredible their family tree and family history is, you don't mention the family secrets, do you? Is that right? You don't do that. Every, you know, the sort of family know, but we don't go around broadcasting it. But Matthew actually goes out of his way to broadcast it. And that puzzles theologians, scholars and what they call textual critics that examine these ancient manuscripts um, for a living. They're actually professionals at looking at the culture and the text of that ancient world. So this is a scandal. Right up front, 
got David, Abraham, Jacob, three patriarchs, three, you know, fathers of the faith. We get that. Then we get this story of Judah and Tamar. Well, it's a little bit sticky. It's a little bit, I'm going to tell you, I don't know if you know the story. I'm going to unpack a little bit today. So go to the next slide. Thanks, Jackie. So misfits and undesirables. Here's an artist sketch of an incident that takes place between Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And I'll tell you what, you can read the story for yourself, actually, if you're taking notes, in Genesis 38. The whole chapter is this story. But let me give you a little sort of a paraphrased version of what happens. Because Tam, the reason why she's, Tamar's mentioned is she finds herself, mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, she finds herself in a very uh, precarious, sticky situation that she has to get herself out of. And so when... We, now, we're not Jewish. Most of the people in this room, I imagine, are not Jewish. We don't think like a Jew. We don't act like a Jew. But if you're a Jewish reader reading Matthew's account in the first, second or third century, your ears and your eyes are going to pop out of your head as soon as you read that name Tamar because you know her story. It's in Genesis. And you've read that story. Your rabbi has been teaching from that story. If you actually did any training in rabbinimic school, you had to learn that story verbatim. And so we might, we might miss it as modern-day Christians and Westerners, but the original audience, they would have sprung straight away, oh, what's that doing in there? So here's the story between Judah and Tamar. Judah has three boys, and he marries... He marries his first son called, it's, it's spelled E-R, but it's pronounced Ayer. So his first son, Ayer, marries this girl called Tamar. But Ayer is actually a bit of a wicked little naughty boy. He's very, he does many different things that his dad's not happy with, Judah, and God's not happy with, and he actually dies prematurely because of his wickedness. Now that leaves Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, a widow. In this ancient world, it was a common practice where if a woman was widowed and the father-in-law had other available sons, you would marry your brother-in-law. Now, every lady in this room, just say, praise God, those days are over. <laughs> Come on. I don't think I'd want to marry my sister-in-law anyway. That's another story. <laughs> but in that, in that culture... You know, some, Sue and I were talking about this whole story and unpacking how crazy... This story is just like crazy story. But part of it was, you know, in, in the ancient world where a, women, a woman didn't have... Um, she certainly had no income, she had no rights, usually had no education. And it was actually one way of keeping her from becoming destitute and actually dying. So, you know, we look back from our modern values and our modern take on things and judge it from our side of history. But in actual fact, back then, it provided some way of protecting her and also continuing the family line, which was part of what God was doing in Israel at the time. They wanted to continue the, the Israelites to grow and develop. So Tamar, her husband, dies because he's wicked. She's left a widow. So Judah comes to her, her father-in-law, and says to her, listen, why don't you take my second son? And his name was Owan. It's, it's spelled O-N-A-N, but pronounced with a W after the O. Onan. So Anan marries his sister-in-law out of obligation, but he's not very happy about it. 
He doesn't like her. He's probably not attracted to her. The Genesis 38, when you read it, doesn't give a lot of detail, except to say, when it came to the wedding night, not much really went on. And so, get this, Onar drops dead because he's disobedient. So poor Tamar is widowed twice by the same family. So Judah, the father-in-law, he's sitting back thinking, there's something wrong with this girl. He does. Like he, when you read Genesis 38, it gives the idea in the Hebrew that he's starting to think she might be cursed. But he's obligated. He has a third son. I can hear the groans. It's not looking good for the third boy, is it? So he has a third son, Selah. But Selah, thank the Lord, is too young to get married. So she probably breathed a sigh of relief. Judah probably breathes a sigh of relief. He's too young at this stage. But because of the cultural and religious circumstances that they lived in, Judah says to Tamar, why don't you actually go and live over here in this village as a widow? And when my younger son, my only son left, Tamar, uh, Selah, is old enough, you can marry him. But Genesis 38 tells us Judah really had, he almost had no intention of following it through. He's sort of pushing her off to the side. And again, in that culture, he's leaving her quite defenceless and destitute. So she's forced to go and live away from the extended family, which is unusual in that culture. She's living out, we don't really know where she lives, the Bible doesn't explain that, but she's living away from them. Years go on, years pass, and she's living as a widow in an unfamiliar space on her own, probably within a community village, but we don't really know where she is. During those years, as Selah grows up, Judah's wife dies. So now he's widowed. Her father-in-law lost his wife, and he's a widow as well. And then the story goes is, after this period of mourning from the loss of his own wife, Judah, uh, who's quite a wealthy herdsman, he's got a whole lot of sheep in a neighbouring sort of near a neighbouring town. And so he says to one of his buddies, let's go and shear the sheep. My period of mourning is over. I've still got to get on with life basically and I'm going to go and shear on my sheep. Tamar, in another village, hears what he's doing. So remember, she's been in this place on her own for a number of years, we don't know how long, but it's probably quite a few years, thinking he's really, he's reneged on his deal, I'm not going to marry Selah, Selah's old enough, and nothing, I've never heard, they've never called me in, it's probably not happening. So she goes and puts a veil over her face, part of the common culture, so she's unrecognisable in public. She goes to a particular town that Judah has to pass through to get to his sheep, to do the shearing. And she sits at the fork in the road waiting for them. And that's really this artist impression that you get here. When Judah turns up and passes this woman sitting at the side of the road, he actually has a very bad desire. He's widowed, he's looking for a woman, and so he propositions her. But he doesn't know who she is. And so, again, thinking of Tamar's situation, again, Genesis doesn't tell us what's in her head or why she's sitting there, what was her original intention. But when he makes this offer, she says to him, well, what will you give me? I'm not doing this for free. So he says, I'll give you a goat, which in that culture is quite a bit of money. He says, I'll give you this goat. She goes, but you don't have a goat on you. 
which he didn't. So this is what she does. She's a smart girl. She says to him, give me your, the robe that you tie your robe with, with your family seal. Give me that. That holds some importance. And give me your staff. So he's carrying a, he's walking with a staff as collateral and I'll wait for the goat. So they sleep together. He doesn't know it's his daughter-in-law. Three months go by and Judah thinks, I've got to go and send this goat to this woman that I slept with. So he sends the same guy he went shearing with, with the goat, to this, to this village. And when his mate gets there with the goat, he goes around looking for this woman. The town people say, there's no woman like that lives here. We don't, we don't have any working girls. We don't know what you're talking about. You've got the wrong place. So he comes home with the goat and says to Judah, not there. She's not there. So Judah still doesn't have his little family robe, tie, seal and staff. But around the same time, Judah hears on the grapevine that Tamar's pregnant and he's furious. Because in his mind, the widow of his two boys is pregnant, has been unfaithful. And he actually, again in this culture, he was allowed to pronounce a death sentence on her for doing that. So he does. He says, she'll be burnt to death, bring her to me. Because she's still living in this other town. So she comes in. I would have loved to have been here that day, by the way. Just appeals to my dramatic sense of story, right? He's furious. He's the one that did the deed. But he doesn't know it. But he's so mad, he wants her killed and set alight. And so she walks in. She's brought in by these servants. She walks in in front of him. And before he can scream out in anger, she has what in her hand? Yeah, oh yeah, it gets a little bit... This is a great movie, isn't it, by the way? (laughs) You're all going to be reading Genesis 38 this afternoon. You thought the Bible was clean, you know, all that sort of stuff. These these are real stories. So she walks into the room knowing she's... The death sentence probably she's heard that she will be killed. So she walks in and before he can yell at her or whatever he wants to do, she simply holds up his tie with his seal and his staff and says these words that the child that I carry is the owner of these items that's all she says well can you imagine the look on his face (laughs) it's interesting the way the bible sort of tells the story whoever wrote this part of genesis is that he had nothing to do with her from that day on basically but she actually gave birth to twins Um, And at the time, they didn't know they were having twins until she was giving birth, but she ended up giving birth to twins. And it's because of those twin boys with Judah, her father-in-law, that that carries down into the line of David and that carries down into the line of Jesus. Misfits. I mean, where's their reputation and all that sort of stuff? Because, you know, genealogies in Matthew's day, when Matthew's writing, you can just imagine Matthew saying, now, who am I going to include? Am I going to include a full list or not? But the scandal actually is that Matthew knows this incredible, horrid story. He's read it many times, good Jewish boy. He knows all the detail, but he actually includes it because, well, genealogies in the old, in the old sort of culture of Matthew were a way of actually building a reputation. So it's a bit like, you know, when you and I sit down and read someone's resume you know, you've written your own resume and you're going for a job, you always over-exaggerate the good things you've done, right? So who you've worked for, your achievements, your education, right? Well, I know you wouldn't, I have. 
right? We, because we're trying to build some credibility here, aren't we? We're trying to build a bit of reputation and credibility. And so that's what's unusual about Matthew is in, unlike all other genealogies of the same era that were written down, that do that. Just focus on the good to show how great your family is and how incredible you are. But Matthew doesn't do that. In fact, it, this is not the only story that's questionable in Matthew that includes in the genealogy. Some, some of the, the, those 43 names, we don't know a lot of detail because the Bible doesn't include it all. Some of it we do know quite a bit of detail because the Bible does tell us. But what I can say to you, of those 43 names, there are some more scandals in there. And you know, go for, if you want to have a look at them, go for it. And so what we find here is simply this. Why would Matthew include it? Go to the next slide, thanks, Jackie. Why would Matthew actually include it? Well, I was thinking of my own life as I'm, I'm studying all this stuff over the last few weeks and thinking how I'm a misfit. You know, I don't have a Christian heritage. Um, you know, my story of coming to know Jesus and then, you know, dedicating my life to following the instructions for living according to what God wants me to do, that's a whole story. But I effectively don't belong in the family of God if it comes down to being born in the right family or being of good character myself. And in fact, as I look around here this morning, this is probably your story, my story. And so, you know, I think as, as uh, modern day Christians, we assume that Jesus should have had this perfect, unblemished family tree. But that's not my story and that's not your story. We don't have a perfect unblemished family tree. Sue and I have been doing some research around our, our family trees. Um, Sue had a, a relative that jumped ship when they landed in Australia in the 1800s and was probably one of the first illegal immigrants, boat people. Um, I have a relative, listen to this story, I have a relative, by, I told you, her name was Sarah. Sarah marries a guy called John. His name is Plunkett, great surname by the way. John Plunkett. So Sarah and John get married. Uh, I, I, yeah, and they have one or two children. So one of their children's called Frederick. And, you know, through all our history, I've got an auntie that studied all this, so she's telling us the story. But John, Sarah's husband, dies at the age of 31 from tuberculosis in the years 1880. So she's struggling to make ends meet. So the family, the, what the family current family who are alive know about her is she was a very hard worker. She opened up a home and took in boarders to try and pay the bills and feed her children as a widow. Um, she also did other people's washing to try and make ends meet. Like in terms of her um, work attitude was actually really hard worker trying to keep the family and her kids going. But after her husband died, Sarah had two more children and there was no immaculate conception here. Her next child was born in 1881, nearly a year after her husband died. So we're not sure whether he fathered the next child before he died or not. But her third child was born in 1882. Her fourth child was born in the 16th of March, 1889. And her husband had died in 1880. But her fourth child was Ethel. That's my great-great-great-grandmother on my mother's side. So no one has a perfect family tree so I could insert my own photo here I don't have to worry about Tamar and Judah I'm not going to throw stones at them 
I could put in my own photo into this story of being a misfit and an undesirable, someone who, on paper at least, with the expectations in the modern Christian sort of sanitised view that we have of living, and, you know, we should all be perfect little Christians, but that's just not the reality, is it? It's not the reality. Now, here's what I think was going on, and it's not just me uh, reading in different theologians and scholars. They actually say they think the reason Matthew puts it in there that story and then some of the others, some of the other names, is because he's trying to show to Jewish people who are very righteous, law, it's all about the law, that God always included people who didn't fit in or who excluded themselves by doing the wrong thing. This is not a new thing. This is not something that sort of God just did in the modern era for you and me. God has always included people who don't fit the bill of being righteous and following the Torah or the law that Jews had to obey. He's always wanted non-Jews in his family. That was always the case. Abraham wasn't Jewish. I don't know if you ever thought about that. There were no Jews. And Abraham wasn't perfect either. He did a few things he shouldn't have done, right? And yet we call him the father of faith. So here's, here's, the, here's the application for us as we come to Christmas. Don't be too hard on yourself. You know, let's not be so self-righteous. You know, we don't talk about that probably enough. But we just from this story or this scandal of just this one inclusion in Jesus' family tree that's listed for us, it reminds us that God has always made a way for those who shouldn't be here, like me, like you. That was always, God's always done that, even before we get to the new covenant with Christ. The Old Testament's full of stories of people coming into his family because God will take anyone who by faith accepts him. It's nothing to do with you being the right sort of, from the right stock or the right family. Now, I don't know about you, but when, uh, when I come to my family Christmas times and gathering with, with my extended family, I've got some odd people there. <laughs> There's some real misfits. I mean, I thought I was a misfit. Um, you know, there's stuff going on in my family I'm, I'm not going to go through because it's been recorded for a start, but <laughs> it's like, you know, something happened just this week and I just shake my head and think, oh, gee, what future, you know, do some of my family members have who are not, you know, they're not following Jesus. They don't know God's love. So here's the thing, and this is the challenge for me, but I'm putting it to you at the same time. Don't be too hard on other people. None of us get in because we deserve it or because we're righteous. We are made right with God because of Jesus. That's why Jesus was born. When we celebrate the birth of this saviour, this baby king, this saviour king, this messiah child lying in a, in a, in a feeding trough for animals because there's nowhere for them to stay, that's the reason he was born, is to inclu- be as inclusive as possible, not exclusive. And we have to be very, very careful because I think some Christians get very exclusive very quickly and they forget how they got in the door in the first place. That, that's, that's what we have to do. Now, remember this. If you're following Jesus, you, you're being led by the Holy Spirit, you, you're, my, our response to knowing Jesus is we want to live right, but it never makes us right before God. And so what we have to do, you know, I have to do with my family, you'll have to do it probably with some of your family or some of your work colleagues or your neighbours. Don't prejudge them. 
just show them some love and mercy. Even if you feel this self-righteous thing welling up in you to correct them or to tell them they shouldn't be doing this, just remember in Judah and Tamar didn't get it quite right either. And yet that led to King David, which led to the Messiah. And God still included them. So not that we have a free license to do whatever we want once we come to know Jesus. Of course not. Because there are consequences to doing wrong things outside of God's judgment. There's just natural consequences. But, you know, I just want to encourage you, don't be too hard on the people in your lives that you think don't measure up. Christmas is a great time to not only invite them, but just to be a witness by showing some love and mercy and care. You're not saying you agree with them, with whatever they're doing. I don't, I'm not saying that when I'm with my family, by showing some mercy and care, because I know the only way I got into God's family was through Christ. That's it. Why don't you close your eyes for a moment as I bring this to a close. Just examine your own heart right now. There's going to be some... I imagine as I've been speaking just in the last few minutes, there's going to be some people that have popped into your mind around, well, that person shouldn't do that. They don't measure up. Why do I have to be nice to them? They did this to me. You know, all those sort of thoughts. I get those thoughts as well. But, you know, the very first scandal of Christmas was being developed centuries before Jesus was even born to show that God wants to include everybody. None of us are perfect. Make room for others because God made room for you and for me. That's the good news. We can't qualify. It's not character requirements. We're not perfect. It's grace and mercy that comes by knowing Jesus and accepting by faith God's love. But here's the thing for you. You know, you have been chosen by God not because you measure up, but because He loved you. Before the foundation of the world, He was ready to call you the day you were born. So Father God, we just commit ourselves right now to taking on the responsibility of showing mercy and kindness we're misfits in your family. We don't measure up. We're, not, we're imperfect. We, all of us know as we sit here and pray before you of how imperfect and fallible and fallen we really are. And yet your incredible love and grace lifts us up and recovers the brokenness and restores us to make us one of your children that we be called the sons and the daughters of the living God. I mean, what manner of love that you've lavished on us, Father. And so, Lord, I pray today that we would approach this Christmas with a little bit of a different heart that's your heart, that is inclusive, that shows and demonstrates mercy, even when it goes against what's in our heads. But help us to be led by your Holy Spirit, to be merciful, graceful. And Lord, may people come into your kingdom as a result of us demonstrating the love that you've demonstrated to us. That's our prayer today, Father God. That's our prayer. Father, thank you most first and foremost for your love, your mercy towards me, towards every person in this room, towards every person that's listening to this podcast. Lord, I just pray that as we walk into celebrating the birth of you, Jesus, that we would represent you even closer than ever before. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. What a great story, hey? You never thought you'd come and hear that as a Christmas message. You'll never forget Judah and Tamar. Listen, if you, if you start uh, getting a bit bored this afternoon and go on the nod, just open up Genesis 38. There's a bit more detail in there that was uh, 
what's well, R-rated, so I couldn't go into it, but let's just leave it at that. Hey, listen, we're coming around our missions giving just before we close the service. I've got some, I want to give you a couple of updates. Number one, I've been talking to Vince from Youth Alive Italy. So I know most of you remember Vince was here in September. And um, so I've been chatting to him about his time with us. And you know what? He said to me that he's never found a church that just embraced him and made him feel like one of the family so instantly. And look, really, this is honest. From my heart, I know a lot of people went out of their way to make him feel at home. Some of you hosted him, you fed him, you looked after him, you took him places, you paid for things for him. Thank you for doing that because he, he really is, was genuinely touched and God spoke to him through, through his time here in Australia. He wanted me to pass on his love and thanks to you today. And so you know, I just wanted to give you that update. Um, we're, looking, we're talking about whether you'll come back next year. So we're going to see if that'll work, um, see what happens there. But actually, let me tell you a little bit about Scott and Rachel Wellard. Um, in the UK and Liverpool. So, of course, they're, they're planning a church in Liverpool. Um, some of you heard Scott preach here a couple of years ago just before they left. They have added to their family this week. Um, so you'll see there a little baby girl. Um, her name is Oliver Bell. It's not a misspelling or a mispronunciation. That's her name, Oliver Bell. Um, I did ring Scott and have a chat with him and checked. And apparently he's being inundated by this. I'm not the only one asking that question. I said to him, listen, I'm going to announce it on Sunday. Is that right? And uh, I can't spell either. So Sue thought I'd spelled it wrong. I said, no, I just copied it off his Facebook feed. But anyway, um, Oliver Bell is doing very, very well. She weighed in at 10 pounds and four ounces. That's a big fish, you know, big, big fish. Rachel's doing very, very well also. Um, and Scott, oh, Scott's almost delirious. When I rang him, um, he was in a, a cafe, you know, with the time difference. I rang him, I don't know, it was about 10 o'clock at night here, which was like midday over there or something. And uh, he, I said to him, oh, where are you? I could hear some noise. And he says, oh, I'm in this cafe. He says, Greg, I've got no family here. And I just want to show my little daughter off to everybody. So he's sort of going to all the shops he normally frequents. <laughs> To show everybody his new little girl. And, of course, um, she's a sister to their son, Elijah, who's, who's around four or five years of age as well. So, you know, when you give to missions, that's where our funds go. We support Vince in Youth Alive Italy and we support Scott and Rachel. They've just um, had their second child, which is great. You know, you can always give to missions. You, we do a missions offering around once a month, but you don't have to wait for that. Remember, we did Faith Promise Giving in September. Many of you have made online commitments. Thank you for doing that because we're actually financially supporting both those projects and these people. And so that's where your funds go. They really depend on it. We do this because some people don't give electronically. So if you want to give today, we're going to take up an offering just right now. I'll pray. Let's pray for both um, Youth Alive, Vince, and also uh, the Wellard family. Father God, we thank you for our relationship with them. And for what you're doing through them, Lord, what Vince is doing in that nation is just outstanding. And yet, Lord, I personally know how much um, he really depends on you for every provision. He, he doesn't have a lot of cash. In fact, we know he struggles regularly. And yet his faithfulness over 14 years to do what you've called him to do. And you just he's just one of your champions, God. We pray a blessing over his life, more provision to come in for him not just from Uni Hill Church, but from other places and relationships as well. Lord, for Scott and Rachel, for Elijah and for Olivia Bell, Lord, we just, Oliver Bell, we just pray, Father God, that you continue to keep them safe, Lord, 
Lord, particularly as um, as just the birth and all the stuff that goes around it. Lord, we want them to know that we love them. They're blessing your protection and nurture. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just pick up those containers, pass them along. Scott told me that he is um, he hasn't taken a break. They're still running. They have a church service uh, once a week. They do a dinner for the university students in the area they live in on a Tuesday night. Um, they also run a mother's play group on a Friday. So they haven't stopped any of that stuff, even though um, they've just had a new baby uh, being born into the family. So if you're on Facebook, you can connect with, with Scott and Rachel's on Facebook as well and just encourage them. I'm sure they'd love to hear from you. Well, may the Lord bless you. Have a great day today. Um, stick around, have a tea or a coffee. Um, have a great week. We'll see you on Sunday next week. And Pastor Charles will be here to bring the word. Thank <laughs> you.